Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Judy Langhans from the Continuing Nursing Education Office and the Center for Learning and Professional Development. And I'd like to thank you for joining us for the special session of Nursing Grand Rounds entitled Update on Thoracic Surgery. Um, I'm going to just get started because I do believe there's something in here at 1 o'clock. Okay. So I have to be mindful of the time today. Um, be sure to sign in. Um, the sign-in sheet's in the back of the room. You must attend 80% of the program to receive credit. Um, everyone will receive a link to an evaluation by the end of the day, and we'd appreciate it if you take a moment to fill out the evaluation. Uh, we um, look forward to your feedback. Your contact hour will be posted to your online transcript within two weeks, and this educational activity carries one contact hour. Your instructions on how to access your online transcript in the back of the room, or you can contact me. The learning objectives for today's program are within the slides, and uh, neither our speaker nor any members of the planning committee have identified a financial interest or a relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this presentation, and no one refused to disclose. Our presenter today is Dr. David Finley. Dr. Finley is the section chief of thoracic surgery the Director of the Comprehensive Thoracic Oncology Program and an Associate Professor of Surgery at the Geisel School of Medicine. Dr. Finley is fairly new here at Dartmouth. He's been here since January 2015. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Finley and thank him for providing us this important update on thoracic surgery. Thanks very Thanks. much. <laughs> Sorry, I normally wear a suit, um, but I, was, I, just, I literally just walked out of the OR. Uh, so thanks for having me. Um, I talk very quickly. If I uh, mumble or say things that don't understand, throw something at me or wave your hands, I'll stop and go back. Um, so we're just going to kind of go through an update on thoracic surgery. I know that the program here had uh, pretty much fallen apart, and um, and the reason I was brought in was to kind of rebuild the program. A little background: I, um, I went to Duke undergrad. I went to University of Vermont for medical school, uh, and then was out in Chicago for three years, and then switched to Cornell's program and did research at Cornell in New York, and then. Uh, stayed on at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center for Fellowship and then stayed on as an attending there for seven years. And the main thing that I initially worked on was molecular kind of background of cancers uh, and looking at molecular profiles and then uh, switched into kind of a little bit more clinically relevant stuff which was specifically looking at um, advanced um, diagnostic and therapeutic instrumentation, so robotics and bronchoscopic ways of doing things. And so as part of that, I uh, though I have no financial uh, interest in any of the topics I'm talking about, I do work for both Ethicon Global Surgical and Olympus Spiration, specifically in device development for both of those companies. So I work with their engineers to try to uh, develop new devices that are minimally invasive that allow for better diagnostic and therapeutic options for patients. Um, I won't talk about any off-label or investigational uses, and I'm not receiving payments for this. Uh, and so the objectives is to go through really the current standard practice uh, uh, regime, including rationale for pain management for general thoracic surgical patients. The usual pathways for post-operative patients uh, for wedge resections and those who have lobectomies and identify, um, kind of this is, as we, we initially did this for the four West nursing staff, but this is kind of going out to all the nursing staff since we're having patients that are kind of floating to everywhere and ICUs and we're overflowing, as they say. Um, we're, we're about 50% above where people expected us to be. So we'll go through some of the common thoracic surgical diseases, both benign and malignant, talk about some of the uh, way that we do surgery, and then kind of what are the different postoperative uh, kind of cares that happens in these patients. So um, <clears throat> in my previous uh, life, I did not encounter empyemas all that often. When you're 
at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in the middle of Manhattan. There's not too many people that come in after four or five weeks of feeling malaise and not doing well and having pneumonia that wasn't treated and you get an empyema. But this is what I see often up here. So it's infected, space, uh, infected fluid in the pleural space. It's usually secondary to pneumonia. And the paranemonic effusion, which is kind of the fluid that's created just from inflammation of the lung, gets infected. If it's treated early, you can just put a tube in. So you put a tube in, it drains, and they're all fine. But if you wait, uh, oftentimes you have to do what's called a decortication, which you go in and, and the protein that's left inside the pleural space becomes solidified. And then it actually creates a peel over the lung. So the lung is compressed and then it has a covering on it. And the lung will not re-expand. And if you don't do that, um, they will either have a persistent infection um, or they'll have uh, a decrease in their functional status afterwards because they won't be able to breathe normally. So you lose probably about 30% of your lung function associated with this. So it allows for improved aeration and decreased infectious complications associated with it. And it's not a pretty procedure. There's nothing uh, technically adept about it. You just have to really go in and just kind of scrape the stuff off. Diaphragm paralysis is interesting. There's multiple causes. It's usually iatrogenic. We do it. So either they get an ablation uh, for a cardiac problem or someone goes and does a surgery or someone does something and somehow the, the phrenic nerve is injured. Uh, so either a head and neck surgery or a thoracic case or a cardiac case. Um, and it, what it does is it causes paradoxical motion of the diaphragm. That's probably the biggest issue. Uh, there's a thing that's called a sniff test, which basically they stand instead of in front of a floral machine and they take gut, they go, and what you're doing is you're watching the diaphragms. And what they should do is they should both go down when you take a sniff in, right? That's standard. When you have a diaphragm paralysis, it's not that one doesn't move, actually one goes up. So you have one go down and the other goes up. And so all the benefit that you have of the diaphragm going down on one side, you lose on the other side. And so these people have significant shortness of breath, not at rest, but once they start doing any kind of exercise at all. Um, and they have a significant increase in work of breathing. And what you do is you do diaphragm plication. If anyone's ever done any kind of pleats on a pants, on a pair of pants, that's exactly what we do. Literally take it, you fold it, and you sew it. And then you take it and you fold it and you sew it. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to get this really big dome diaphragm that's up high. And you're just kind of bringing it down, bringing it down, bringing it down. And you make it flat. And more than anything else, you regain some of the volume that you lost because the diaphragm is elevated. But you get rid of the paradoxical motion. So with the diaphragm flat, it's tight. It's like a drum. And so when you sniff in, one will drop down and the other one just stays. It doesn't move at all. And we usually do this uh, as a robot-assisted fast procedure. Um, because you're suturing so many, um, it's much easier to do it robotically than it is to do a standard VATS. Um, most institutions across the country actually do this through a uh, standard thoracotomy. So they actually come from here, and they go all the way back to about here, open it up around the seventh or eighth interspace so they get access to the diaphragm. The person's usually in hospital for about five to seven days. Um, we've done nine of them so far since I've been here. Um, and, uh, and we've had almost everyone except for one person go home on post-up day one. So, uh, yeah, and they, and they literally wake up from the procedure and say, I can feel the difference. I feel better already. <clears throat> Flailed ribs. Uh, this is secondary to multiple fractures, and they have increased work of breathing due to paradoxical motion of the chest wall. So instead of their diaphragm going the opposite direction, their chest wall does. So when they go, your chest expands, but unfortunately, in these patients, the chest actually goes in. And because the chest goes in, that paradoxical motion makes it very difficult for them to take in deep breaths. <clears throat> It, um, up until a couple of years ago, this was really only recommended for patients who were intubated and couldn't come off a vent or had such severe pain from the rib fractures that they weren't able to kind of get out of the hospital because they're on IV narcotics or epidural. Um, now, uh, the indications are starting to expand, and we're doing it in more and more people, even if they're comfortable, if they have significant flailed segment 
even without shortness of breath, or they have significant displacement of the ribs, just like you would in a leg or an arm, where you need to put the bones back together again for them to heal, their indications are now starting to expand because of the, the outcomes that they found with this. So it significantly improves the work of breathing after you fix them. They have decreased length, length of stay, it improves uh, success in leaning the vent, decreased pain, restores chest wall contour, and more importantly, there's uh, two, a paper just came out about two months ago that showed that the incidence of retained hemothorax uh, is significantly lower, and the incidence of empyema after uh, retained hemothorax in patients with multiple root fractures is lower by like 25%. So it's not a small amount. We, uh, we had a guy who, um, I have a picture of someone that the video, I'll see if it works, um, but there's a, a gentleman that we just did who, um, his hat fell off um, while he was using his tractor and he thought he put it in park. Um, and he didn't and he actually got out and the tractor rolled over him. So the front wheel went from here and rolled down. And so he had rib fractures from one through 10 on the left side. And he's a classic, you know, New Englander. He's like, well, it doesn't hurt too bad. Um, and, uh, and so um, we went by and we saw him and one of his ribs was actually, it was so displaced that it was sitting in his lung tissue like this from his chest wall. So I just saw him yesterday in clinic, uh, and he's two weeks post-op. Um, looks absolutely phenomenal. We plated six of his ribs, um, and uh, and plated multiple areas, and uh, his contour is normal. His lungs completely expand, and he's like, I feel totally better. How old was he? He was 76, 77. Jesus. Yeah, yeah, he's a, you know, he's a classic New Englander. <laughs> so um, of course, this isn't going to project. Uh, See if the video shows. So you see, I don't know if you can kind of Does see the it. Down yeah. a little you bit see how his chest is going in? Yeah. You see how it like falls in? Oops. See how it falls in? Mm -hmm. So here, I'll try to play it again. So you see it sucks down? So he had fractures all the way along. So he had a, uh, a PEA arrest, and they did compressions on him, and it fractured ribs two through eight on both sides. And so every time he took a breath in, his entire sternum would collapse in and then lift up again. And so we couldn't get him extubated. So, and that was what his chest x-ray looked like. So he had no pulmonary toilet. He couldn't cough, he couldn't take in a deep breath, couldn't do anything. So. We took him to the OR, and what you can see here is, you can see this is his sternum right there, this is his right left pec, his right pec, um, and what we've done is, this is the serratus muscle, and we split the muscle so we won't cut it. Or you don't want to cut through the serratus muscle, you denervate it and so it doesn't work anymore. So you actually split it along the muscle fibers, and you can see the plates that we put in. And that's kind of, it was lateral on the plates. And, um, and this is his contour of his chest afterwards. So he had a flat, like it was like depressed down in. Now that his chest, we actually measured it. It was an inch of height that we gained in the AP diameter after we did it. And then, let's see if it works. And see how it doesn't go down nearly as much. And so he still has some of that motion, but at least his, his chest is staying up the way it's supposed to. And he was breathing much better. And that's his x-ray afterwards. So you see, we played on both sides, and basically played three of his ribs to kind of stabilize the sternum, um, and he was able to get off the vent. <clears throat> so.
So other benign things, esophageal perforation. We've now had 11 since we've been here. I just took a woman to the operating room who was 84, who came in 36 hours after an esophageal perforation. Uh, and uh, she actually went to an outside hospital, <laughs> was told that she was fine, was constipated, went home, had Chinese food, and then came in 36 hours later septic. Um, and the reason that I knew it was Chinese food before talking to her family is because she had mushrooms in her chest. You know the little Chinese mushrooms? Everyone knows exactly what they look like. Um, and she survived and we just dilated her. She had a small little uh, stricture from, uh, from the repair. And she's now two months out doing fine eating on her own. Looks great. Um, thoracic duct ligation for people who have um, uh, thoracic duct injuries and they have chylothoraxes. So we had a gentleman who um, got stepped on by a horse, um, had no fractures or anything else, but had a two liter chylus effusion um, that wouldn't respond to diet change. And so we took him to the operating room and robotically tied off his thoracic duct on the left side. And he came back in uh, yesterday in clinic, and he's fine as well. So then tracheal resections and reconstructions for people that have narrowing of their trachea, for either mostly for benign after getting intubated for a long period of time. Parasophageal and diaphragm hernia repairs. And hellermyotomies is where you basically open up the muscle at the bottom of the esophagus so that because the muscle doesn't relax when a person swallows and it backs everything up and the, the esophagus gets all dilated. So you split that muscle and open it up so that things can just go through and then they don't have the esophageal problems that they normally have. So this is the perforation. This is actually this woman. And you can kind of see right here, here's the hole in her esophagus. Not small. So we actually patched it with a piece of muscle. Um, and there it is. This is a thoracic duct ligation. This is on the right side. And so what we do is you kind of tie the thoracic duct and you clip the edges. <clears throat> so tracheal rese uh, resection and reconstruction. So kind of see what, we're, what you're looking at is the, we make this incision first and then sometimes you have to tee it off to get more length. And so the incision's like this and then down. And so this is the end of the trachea here that's going into her chest and that's the top portion of the trachea there. And then we put it back together again and here's the suture line right there. And that's usually for focal segmental resection. So you'll take two, three, sometimes four centimeters of the, the trachea out and then put it back together again. So then for malignant diseases, classic chest wall tumors, sarcomas, and desmoids. These happen in younger patients. These sarcomas usually are either in young children or in people who have gotten radiation therapy. Uh, mediastinal tumors like thymomas and thymocarcinomas. Schwannomas are in the posterior mediastinum. Um, oftentimes we do these in combination with neurosurgery where they have to do a posterior approach. They basically tie off the nerve root, and then we come through the chest and robotically take out the rest of the lesion. Um, esophageal cancer, fibrous tumors of the pleura, and then lung cancer. Um, this is a woman that um, had a desmoid of her uh, chest wall. She was told for uh, six months that um, she was crazy and that she didn't have a breast mass. Um, and she finally went to another radiologist. They kept just doing mammograms, and there's nothing in her breast. And so they were like, there's nothing there. And then finally the radiologist um, went and felt what was going on and said, I feel something. He put an ultrasound on it and he saw the mass and it turned out to be a desmoid tumor of her chest wall. So this is her pec muscle. This is her breast retracted. So what we did was we kind of do a semicircle incision. We cut a portion of her sternum out coming around and then her ribs. So you can see the lung and the heart. So the lung's there and the heart's there. This is her breast lifted up and over. And then what we do is we reconstruct it. And we basically, you can kind of see how the breast is pulled to the side. This is part of her pec muscle. We had to remove a portion of her pec. This is, if anyone's ever done any kind of car work, this is like Bondo. It's called methyl methacrylate. It's a, um, basically a powder that you add to a liquid. You mix the two together. It's an epoxy. You put it into place, and then it hardens. And it hardens actually harder than bone. 
Uh, we've had patients that have gotten into car accidents after having reconstructions like this, and they break the ribs on either side, or they break the sternum, but the methylmethacolate stays intact. <laughs> so um, we used to use these as plates. We'd make a whole plate of the methylmethacolate, and what happens is that they get a big fluid uh, pocket around them, and they get seromas. And by doing this, it allows everything to seal down around it, and they don't get fluid, and it incorporates into the tissue better. She's actually, she just, um, I just got a text actually about an hour ago on this woman specifically, and her CT scan's negative, and she's been, so she's disease three, free for now three and a half years. So how do you approach these diseases? So I always talk about, you know, old school versus new school, right? Old school is open, large tumors, vascular reconstructions, chest wall resections, and reoperations. Oftentimes you'll have to do this through a big incision. You know, if I'm taking a nine or 10 centimeter tumor out, it doesn't make any sense to make incisions this big, and then I have to make an incision this big to take the tumor out, right? Five, six centimeter tumors, yeah, we can take those out through smaller incisions, um, and the patient will recover faster. Uh, but when they're really big, it doesn't make much sense. Chest wall resections, you're gonna be making a big incision anyway, you might as well use the incision that you're gonna be doing it through. And reoperations, oftentimes the scar tissue is so bad, but this is changing a lot of these cases now, we're attempting to do minimally invasive before we go to an open approach, and if we can't do it minimally invasive, we convert. So minimally invasive, uh, literally almost everything else. There's standard VATS, which stands for video-assisted thoracic surgery. You know, Thoracic surgeons wanted to be fancy. We couldn't call it laparoscopy, so we had to call it VATS. Um, or thoracoscopy, that's the other term. Uh, but then there's robotic-assisted uh, VATS procedures and robotic-assisted minimally invasive esophagectomies, so RAMIs and um, RVATS. Um, someone wanted to call this R-A-V-A-T-S um, or just R-A-T-S. So, <laughs> like, I'm not so sure I want to call it RATS. So we came up with, uh, actually, uh, the group that I was part of myself and my partner um, at Sloan Kettering, we were charged by our boss when I was there um, to uh, build the robotics program. And in the span of about three and a half years, we created the largest robotics program in uh, North America. And so uh, these terms came from a couple of the papers that we wrote on it. So VATS came in the 1990s. It was the era of laparoscopic surgery. It was usually diagnostic procedures, small things, little biopsies or wedge resections where you take a small section of the lung out. It was expanded when the indications in the technique as well as the visualization improved. So as we started getting you know, 760 HD and 1080 HD, or 720 HD and 1080 HD, it started to become where you could actually see what you're looking at. Um, but many physicians were not convinced that this surgery was equivalent, let alone better than open surgery. And there was one, uh, Robert Serfolio, who's a good friend of mine, who's down in Alabama, um, who uh, wrote so the one of the first VATS papers that came out, a memorial, um, he wrote an editorial saying that it was tantamount to medical malpractice to do VATS procedures for cancer because you couldn't do the same lymph node dissection. Um, <clears throat> he'll also tell you that he sucks at VATS. Um, so that's probably the main reason. But we know that it's safe and effective for early stage lung cancer. This is kind of where it came from. They have less post-operative pain, fewer days off from work, lower complication rates, lower local recurrence, and a long-term survival that's associated with it. And this is actually um, coming out in the literature now. Um, so we know that by doing minimally invasive procedures, not only do they have less pain to get out of the hospital sooner, but there's actually a survival benefit associated with it. And we just wrote a paper, well, my group that I was with before, and kind of I'm on it, um, looking at robotics versus VATS versus open, and uh, robotics has a survival advantage over the other two. Uh, and we're not exactly sure why, but we think it's due to the inflammatory reaction that you have to a smaller uh, operation, and the robotics actually does a better lymph node dissection than a VATS, so we think that it's uh, due to stage migration as well. So why is it better? Less pain, easier to heal, limited damage to the chest walls, so that means that you can take a deep breath, you get up sooner, lower stress hormones, and this is the decreased recurrence that, we're think, that we think is actually happening. There is currently data 
um, that shows uh, if you exercise. So in 2005, um, the nursing cohort that's in the United States, I think it's like 65,000 nurses that have signed into this cohort that's been followed for the last 40 years or something. Um, they looked at the women in that cohort with breast cancer, and they asked them the simple question, do you or do you not exercise, and how much do you do? And so they categorized those, and if women exercised uh, three hours a week, uh, so it's about a little bit more than a half an hour a day, give or take, um, that they had a 10% reduction in recurrence of their breast cancer as compared to women who did not exercise, and that's stage for stage and age for age. No one knows about it, right? 2005, New England Journal article. Right? Every time I say it, everyone's like, wow. Um, but you'll give tamoxifen for five years for a 1% to 2% survival benefit, right? And, and that costs somewhere in the vicinity of about fifty dollars to $60,000 for that treatment over that time frame. I'd love to have that, and I could build a gym and have everyone exercise, and we'd be all good, and we'd have a better survival associated with it. But I'm not the one that makes the decisions. Anyway, so we think that when you lower the stress hormone level and you have a person exercise beforehand and do minimally invasive surgery, the immune surveillance is not suppressed during surgery, and the immune surveillance uh, reduces your risk of recurrence. Uh, what's bad about VATS, standard VATS? Uh, one of my partners who's Korean said he was allowed to say this because he said the only Asians can say this, so it's a chopstick-like instruments. Uh, it's harder to operate with, decreased dexterity and limited by the difficulty of the operation. If you think about it, you have normally operate, you kind of move your wrists, right? And that's how you operate, you kind of grab things, twist it, do stuff. But as it gets further and further away, those instruments can only do this and this, so you're operating kind of like this now, right? So we've lost our wrist action. And if you think about it, you have somewhere in the vicinity of 9 to 12 degrees of freedom of motion in your wrists. Um, so it's good. It's not the best. And we know that there's no depth perception with the imaging and there's no magnification. So it's a standard scope, single vision, so you don't have any ability to use kind of cues as to the size of things as to how far you're pushing an instrument or not. And you'll see that when we work with young residents who haven't done very much laparoscopic or vac surgery. They put an instrument in and the, the structure is here and they stop here. You're like, no, keep going, and go here. No, no, keep going, and go here, because they don't know how far away it is. <clears throat> so robotic surgery was hoping to kind of overcome some of these things and, and advance uh, minimally invasive into new fields, specifically cardiac surgery. The, the, the Da Vinci robot system was made for, for cardiac, um, and that failed, meaning that there's currently now maybe 25 or 30 centers across the country that do robotic uh, cardiac surgery, but the majority of them don't. People tried it, and unless you're doing it kind of on a regular basis, it doesn't work out too well. But everyone else started using it, because the, the hospital bought a robot, and it was just sitting there. So the urologist said, hey, let me try this. And the gynecologist said, hey, let me try this. And the head neck surgeon says, yeah. And so we've now got prostatectomies, nephrectomies, hysterectomies, oophorectomies, base of tongues, vocal cord, a whole bunch of stuff that's being done robotically, and it actually works. <clears throat> Thoracic surgeon said, well, we can't kind of sit by the wayside and watch all these other people do the, use the robot. So we started doing stuff, lobes, segments, anterior mediastinal, posterior mediastinal tumors, esophagectomies, parasophageal hernias, diaphragm resections, anything that we can think of that we can do robotically, we're trying to do it robotically. And why? Decrease hospital stay, improve survival. And we know this because <clears throat> the lower complication rates, decrease inflammatory mediators, all the things that we know from minimally invasive stuff is just amplified because the incisions are even smaller with robotics. What are the other benefits? We have 3D viewing. Contrast enhanced, it's magnified, and I don't have a student holding the camera. I don't know if you've ever been in the OR before and you watch someone and you're like, no, 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 stop turning at them, <laughs> right? Or you're kind of going like this, hoping that you can see the top of the screen because they haven't moved the camera the right way. I move the camera and it's a stable platform. It doesn't shake, it doesn't do anything, I can do, go to it. The benefit of that not only is that I'm not kind of looking around, 
But if you're doing a dissection that you're in a really small hole, I can stick the camera into it and lift up and I can see. So if I'm doing a belly case and I have a giant parasophageal hernia that comes up to their carina, which is here on a person, I can actually get my camera to go all the way up here and have full visualization of what I'm doing. Can't really do that laparoscopically. It's very difficult to get the camera there without getting it dirty. <clears throat> it also has a steep learning curve. So it's easy to learn and it's easier to teach because it's like uh, the old um, uh, driver's ed cars where the person has a brake on the other side. I have a brake, so I have a, two consoles. And the resident that's learning is on one side and I'm on the other. And if they're going to do something wrong, I hit the camera button, he can't move the instruments. It's like my brake. <laughs> so, so remember when I told you about Rob Serfolio who said that VATS is tantamount to medical malpractice? <clears throat> so he decided he was going to try out this robotics thing. He did 168 cases. He had a conversion rate of about 10% in the beginning. About my, my conversion rate right now is about 1.5%. Um, but that's where everyone kind of starts off at. You're somewhere between 10 and 15% conversion rate. 27% morbidity for lobectomies compared to 35% for a thoracotomy. So compared to his open, he had 10% reduction, essentially, in the complications of his procedures. He had 0% mortality and a shorter hospital stay. Patients were in the hospital for two days versus four days. And what he basically said was, it is safe. It's less morbidity and mortality, less postoperative pain. He thought it was easier to do the lymph node dissection. He improved surgical uh, outcomes because they had no mortality, but he said he had to wait for his data, which he is doing right now. Shorter hospital stay, and he thought it was easier to learn. <clears throat> so I told him that he needed a crutch because he couldn't do it vats. He didn't like me after that. Um, and then Bernie Park was one of my uh, old partners. We looked at our data and um, and we looked at three specific institutions, two in Europe, uh, in Italy specifically, and, and ours. And we had 325 patients that underwent early stage, so stage 1A and stage 1B lung cancer, so these were selected patients. And what we found was is that there was improved survivals compared to national statistics. So nationally, <clears throat> the five-year five survival of lung cancer was 73% and 58% for 1B. Horrible outcomes, right? Now I'd say, so this is probably four, this is four years old? Yeah, it's four years old. Um, so that's based on probably six-year-old data. So now we're seeing some of the stage 1As, about 80, 82% five-year survival, still pretty bad. This paper showed a 91 and an 88% survival, and actually our most recent paper that just came out is going to look at a 94% five-year survival for stage 1A lung cancers, which is crazy. So like getting up to where breast is. <clears throat> so it's increasing cost compared to standard VATS, but equal to open because it's a shorter hospital stay. So that you have more equipment for the robotics hospital state kind of makes it a, a break even um, and it's oncologically sound and it can be done at multiple other institutions so not just in one one single institution I think this is the problem with a lot of studies is that one institution gets really good at doing something and they report like this is our outcome and then other people try to do it and they can't they can't uh, du duplicate when you have multiple institutions that are doing the same thing and you can show it statistically that means it usually can be kind of exported to multiple dis different institutions <clears throat> so what I've been working on for the last three years is really kind of extended indications for robotic <laughs> surgery. What, what can you do with this improved dexterity imaging? Okay. That in the past we were too difficult for standard VATS procedures. You have to make sure that it's safe and effective. You have to out review your outcomes and then you have to basically create new approaches, techniques, and instruments. And if you don't do that, you're not advancing anything. You're just kind of using the same old equipment, same old way, just trying to do it in a different way. So Bernie Park, who is a great guy, he basically took the same incisions that we used to use for VATS, and he did the robot exactly that way. So he had a port here, a port here, and a port in the axilla. And he had a person working through the axilla and stuff like that. 
just didn't make any sense when we had a four-arm robot where you're only using three of the arms. So we said, let's modify this. <clears throat> let's make it four arms. Let's change things around. People hate this incision up here because it causes them to have breast pain, usually across their nipple because of where the nerve is. So all of our ports are kind of under the breast and they kind of run around back. And we have a port for an assistant down at the bottom. We actually gas insufflate now so we can push the lung down, push the mediastinum down, push the diaphragm down. We can see better. So that means that I can do more difficult cases. And I don't have as much mediastinal motion going on when we're doing the cases. So that means I can do stuff that's a little bit more technically difficult. <clears throat> so 57-year-old male, centrally located, squamous cell carcinoma. Doesn't look like he had any lymph nodes. He was in good health. 57. <clears throat> Here's a CT scan. Not hard to find a squamous cell carcinoma. More importantly, that's his pulmonary artery. And there's the cancer. So in the world of VATS, you wouldn't touch this. This would be an open case, right? You can't get around the structures safely because you're doing it blindly when you do it VATS. Because you put a camera in, and you have an instrument, and you're kind of working around things, kind of knowing where one instrument is, but not where the back end of it is. <clears throat> and so when you have tumors that are this close, it's a little too dangerous. <clears throat> so we decided, let's try this. If this works, this will be a miracle. So, but I have it, don't worry. I know you're very worried, I can tell. <laughs> so, ah, uh, come on. Hold on a second. We have the technology. Okay. I can't see it here now, but I can see it over here. So let's, uh, okay, so before I start playing it, what you're looking at is this is the pulmonary artery right here. This is the left upper lobe. This is the left lower lobe. The tumor is kind of like right in there. And what I'm using is this is the robot, right? So I, you, you can't see an instrument over here, but there's an instrument that's holding this lung aside. And what I'm basically doing, this is a monopolar in my right hand and a bipolar in my left hand. So this cauterizes from that through the tissue, and the other one cauterizes between its two things. This is the pulmonary artery with one of the big branches going to the upper lobe. And we use a, I call it a noodle. It's just a red rubber catheter that we cut, and we can put a stapler through it. And as you can see here, I'm a little nervous. And I'm telling the fellow, no, you're doing it wrong. Stop, stop. You've got to push your instrument back down that way. And so I can kind of modify what they're doing while we're doing it. Perfect visualization. Now you have the, uh, this is the lower lobe bronchus, the upper lobe bronchus, and the tumor sitting right up here. Normally can't fit a stapler in that, so what I'm doing is I'm cutting the bronchus open. You wouldn't do this as a normal VATS procedure, because you wouldn't be able to sew it together very easily. But with the robot, as you can see, I'm just using it just like I would do. I would literally take that stitch exactly the same way. I would backhand the stitch. And I'm taking it and I'm using my wrist in the instrument. I'm literally going like this and going and, and doing it exactly the way that you would do it open. <clears throat> and I'm taking and I'm tying exactly the way that I would tie open. Take it, tie it, tie it, just do it down, and then it's closed. And that's how it works. <clears throat> there we go. Alright. So. Okay. 
And this is the arrow afterwards. So you can see normally the, you have a, a stump because the bronchus, you kind of take it about a you know, centimeter away from where it bifurcates. But when the tumor is that close, you have to take it sharply. And what you're doing is you're narrowing it a little bit, but this is the lumen going to the lower lobe, which is more than adequate for them to have complete uh, expansion of their lower lobe of their lung. So we have a 39-year-old male who's found a subcranial mass. He, had, he came in with tachycardia. They got chest x-ray or something there. <clears throat> we did an EBUS on it. It had proteinaceous material, so it was a bronchogenic cyst. Went home on post-up day two after a resection of the cyst. You're going to see why this is kind of impressive. That's the cyst. Right? So normally, you would do a right thoracotomy. You'd go in there. You'd dissect. This is on the airway, right? So this thing actually originates from the airway, and it creates this cyst that just has protein in it, and they get infected, and they get bigger, and they can compress the airways. <clears throat> his was partially compressing his airway. So we just went in and took this out robotically. No issues. Right? The guy went home post day two, and that was only because my boss, who I did the case with, wanted to keep him an extra day just to make sure. But he could have gone home and posted day one. Then we had a 53-year-old female who had what was called metachronous. It means she had a lung cancer after another lung cancer, usually two years or three years out. And she had chemotherapy and radiation therapy. And she had this <clears throat> level 7 lymph node, which is, sorry, that should be level 5 lymph node. Um, <clears throat> oh, yeah, that's right. Go back. So at an outside hospital, she had a wedge resection for stage 3A lung cancer. It's not appropriate treatment because her lymph nodes are involved. And they just gave her chemotherapy and radiation therapy afterwards because they did the wrong thing. So they just sent her to the medical oncologist and gave her chemo and, chemo and radiation. And she had a level 5 region uh, recurrence, which is where the aorta curves like this and the pulmonary artery comes out. And right here between the pulmonary artery and the aorta is level 5. <clears throat> and it's near the left upper lobe. And she had no other disease found on PET. And they radiated her again. They said, well, you know, let's radiate this again and see what happens. And so now she's had two rounds of radiation with recurrence in a place that's sitting right here. So here's the aorta. Running right here is the phrenic nerve. Running right here is the recurrent laryngeal nerve to her left vocal cord. <clears throat> now you can see the mass is sitting right here, and that's sitting on top of the aorta. And as you come down, there's the pulmonary artery. So it's abutting both the aorta and the pulmonary artery. So I said, let's try this. And we'll see what happens. So this is all the scar tissue from a radiation therapy that I'm taking down. You can see it was all up on the chest. <clears throat> and kind of all this scar tissue, this is from all the radiation therapy. This is very difficult to see when you're doing these open, because this is literally up here on the top of the lung. And when you're looking in through here, you kind of almost have to stick your head in the wound to see it. But as you can see, we can see perfect visualization of what's going on without any problems. <clears throat> it just makes it very easy for us to take everything down. I have to shorten this video. Boring. So now you see the phrenic nerve right here. The pulmonary artery is right here. That's that thing that's, that's the heart right there. This is the pulmonary artery. That's the tumor right there. Lungs involved, and right over it is the aortic arch. So what we need to do is we need to take this out. <clears throat> and so I'm opening up the pleura that's over the heart. We're going to kind of slowly, basically dissect this tumor off of the structures that are around it. 
And initially, we start off with the monopolar, which is this instrument right here, which is all well and good. So, and then up here, that right there, right, kind of, you kind of see a bluish hue right there. That's the brachiocephalic vein. So that's the vein that comes across and takes the internal jugular and the subclavian vein. That sits right up there. That's the internal mammary artery and vein right there. Here's the phrenic nerve right here. And now it's pushing on. That's where the, the subclavian vein comes into the nominate vein. <clears throat> so now we've switched to a, a bipolar so that I can do it close to the nerve because it doesn't cause as much damage. And what we're doing is we're literally teasing the tumor off of the nerve. And I asked one of my neurosurge colleagues to come in, and what we did was we, we were actually below the epineurium. So the epineurium is kind of the coating on the outside of the nerve, and we kind of went underneath one layer and kind of peeling that off so it preserves the nerve. It might make, make it not work for a short period of time, but the nerve will, will stay intact and will start to function again, usually within six months. Now we're on top of the pulmonary artery trying to peel it off the pulmonary artery and where it's stuck on so that we can get underneath it and get some of this lung tissue off to get the rest of the tumor off. And this is all scarred in because she had two rounds of radiation therapy. <clears throat> this is usually when you have an extra pair or two of underwear in the operating room. You can see them very slowly. My, my fellow was like, why can't you do it faster? I was like, shut up. <laughs> Every once in a while you see like a little mist. Is that like a defogging of the camera? No, that's actually when you cauterize. It's the this, smoke. yeah. So here's our little noodle again. This is so, because I can't really see things so well in the back end. So this allows me to kind of go and bring this up and around. And we can put staplers through here. So now I don't need to see where the tip of the stapler is going because I already have something that's going through and it makes it a lot safer. I can just push it through. <clears throat> and then we'll take the lung tissue off. So we'll clamp that down and then you can cut the lung tissue. And now we've pushed the lung tissue off and now, so there's the recurrent laryngeal nerve. We're working on the phrenic nerve and peeling things off. The pulmonary artery is right down here, and the aortic arch is right like that. And so we're slowly just teasing it off the nerve to keep the nerve intact. <clears throat> we initially started doing it with scissors, but it was just bleeding like stink, so we switched back to the bipolar. <clears throat> and now we've gotten it almost all the way off. Slightly different technique than what you'd use open. But also in a place, you know, this is this is stuck underneath the sternum, so even from an open incision, it's hard to see exactly what we're looking at right here. Um, if you did an open incision, <clears throat> now we're taking the last vessel with a little clip applied, and now there's a tumor out. And so I did that three, almost four years ago. And she recurred about six months ago. But she had, this was positive disease. This was active disease at the time. So if we hadn't taken it out, she would have died of disease much sooner. So she went three years, almost three and a half years, without any chemo or anything else. So she had no progression. This is an anchor bag that we use. Uh, it's made out of a parachute material so that we can keep really small incisions and just pull really, really hard on it, and it'll pop out um, of whatever incision. So there's the left. So there's your phrenic nerve intact. This is the, the left subclavian artery, the aortic arch is here. There's the recurrent laryngeal nerve, and then the PA is underneath there. And there's the other arm that you couldn't see. 
So there's my old boss, Valerie Roosh. There's me actually sitting at the console. And this is kind of the robot setup. This is when we were only using two arms instead of the, uh, using three arms instead of four. So now we'll be kind of shifting afterwards. What happens after you do these procedures? How do you take care of the patients? In the past, classic treatments IV and narcotic. It causes them to confuse, sedated, somnolent. They have nausea and vomiting. They get ileus. They get constipated. And oftentimes, it actually leads to poor pain control. Um, and then you have increased pulmonary complications. And that's known to be the, the highest complication rate is pulmonary complications after these uh, procedures is they have pneumonias. So we've moved to patient-controlled epidural anesthesia, or PCAs, decreased need for intraoperative narcotics and inhaled anesthetic gases. It's actually run during the operation. So they get a bolus before the case starts, and they run the epidural during the entire case. So we have preemptive analgesia to begin with, which reduces postoperative pain, known. Reduces intraoperative inhaled anesthetics and narcotics. Decreased perioperative cardiac events. <clears throat> so they found that people are less likely to have a heart attack with an epidural. And bet better postoperative pain control. They're not as sedated. They don't aspirate. They don't have as much of an ileus. And their complications go down. This has all been documented. Um, and patients are happier because they're not out of it. And they're not constipated and everything else. Um, I have to say that when we first started this, this using it here, um, the patients had their epidurals in and their PCA up, and their pump was wrapped up in a nice little bun with a you know, rubber band sitting at the top and not given to the patients. <laughs> and then we had to kind of make sure that everyone was aware of what we needed to do. 5 to 10% failure rate, and it's usually known immediately after surgery. It's easy to control for nausea. Uh, rarely causes hypotension, and everyone talks about it. it's hypotension, hypotension just rarely causes it, and if it is, it's the local anesthetic that's in it. Um, you can use IV narcotics for rescue immediately in the postoperative period, but it's usually unnecessary. Usually you give them a bolus and you wait, and they'll slowly settle out. Try to explain that if, if they come into the PACU and they're kind of, oh, I'm not comfortable, I'm not comfortable, slam them with IV narcotics is the worst possible thing you can do. Just use the epidural. They'll, they'll get comfortable. It might take 15 minutes, but it's appropriate because then they're not going to be narcotized. We've actually, unfortunately, had three patients that have had to get Narcan specifically because of that reason when they've come to the PACU or, or changing things. <clears throat> Incidents of epidural hematomas or abscess is near zero. Uh, you don't place it in infected patients. It's okay. Uh, if it's in and the patient gets infected, you don't have to remove it. Um, there's this great website that was created by uh, the um, acute pain service at Sloan Kettering. Uh, accessible to anyone, uh, and it basically, uh, you figure out what anticoagulation they're on, so they're on Plavix, they're on heparin, whatever, you hit this, you put in the date, and it tells you when you need to stop it, so for epidurals. <clears throat> and it also tells you if you can continue it while the epidural's in, and it tells you if you're removing the epidurals, how much you have to keep it off for. Um, so pain control lasts for about two hours, so you give oral, oral narcotics during that period of time, and it re reduces rebound pain. So you stop it, you give them a pain pill right when you stop it, and then their oral narcotic kicks in when the epidural is starting to wear off. So it's a very nice transition. <clears throat> so um, when, you, uh, when you're using epidurals, only 5% of women and 10 to 50% of men have trouble avoiding. Uh, it's usually due to a pre-existing condition, and up here, for some reason, there's like every man has BPH and none of them are treated. I mean, it's ridiculous. So every single one of them has urinary retention afterwards. Um, if they found more than one void trial, you place a Foley. So if you have an epidural in, you pull their Foley, you give them one void trial, you straight cath them, pull it out. If they can't void again, they get a Foley until the epidural's out. There's no reason to continually catheterize them over and over and over again. It's torture for the patient as well as for the nursing staff. So not necessary. 
Epidural removed on the same day as discharge, so this is part of the protocol. Uh, it's completely off at four hours, pain control, oral medication, so rarely do they transition from PCA to a PCA. We don't go from a epidural to IV narcotics, so there's almost no one we do that on. Um, and it's only if the epidural's not working that we pull the epidural out. Um, this was a big issue with this institution as well. This is not kind of normal for most people that you'd have to get an epidural out and wait 24 hours for them to leave the hospital. The actual anesthesia guidelines say that you can remove it and have them go home the same day as after a four-hour observation. <clears throat> so I talk about post-operative pathways, and I, 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 I kind of cringe when I even say the word pathway because I have, I have uh, nightmares about pathways and protocols because I think they're both good and bad. Um, they should be used as guidelines, right? There's this idea that a protocol and a pathway is an absolute, everything must happen this way, otherwise it's wrong. Um, and it helps us determine if patients are having issues, right? If they're not progressing, it gives patients realistic expectations. I call it the rule of twos. Whenever, if you come into my clinic, you get so sick and tired of the thing Sandy is like, yes, I know, I hear it a thousand times. It's two to three hours to do the surgery, two days in the hospital, two weeks until you're able to do a full day's activity without getting tired and taking a nap, two months and you're back with your old self again. Right? You give people expectations of where they're going to be. So while they're in the hospital, you're going to have the epidural in. Tomorrow morning, the epidural is going to come out. The, your catheter is going to come out. Your, the chest tube is going to come out. You're going to get put on oral pain medication. As long as you're doing well, you'll go home in the afternoon. You give them that expectation. Then when it happens, they don't feel like they're being pushed out of the hospital. We have patients, I would say probably about 20 to 30% of our lobectomies go home post-op day one. So they come, they come in, they get their case done. That evening, their chest tube is pulled. That morning, the morning after, their epidural comes out, their fully comes out, put on oral pain medication, and they go home. Wedges, same day. How staff and nursing anticipate changes of care, it can be misinterpreted and lead to inappropriate care, so you have to be careful about pathways, because if you just follow it blindly, it's bad, and it can also stifle change in care advancement. So you gotta really be careful about how you set up pathways and what is expected of them. <clears throat> so wedge, majority will go home within 24 hours, most will go home same day. We send them home from the patio. I tell you, that caused a lot of consternation. <laughs> uh, they're kept in house for only two reasons pain control or they have an air leak. Pain control, we use Marcaine with Expril. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of Expril. Expril is a liposomal Marcaine, so it lasts for 72 hours in the tissue. So you put it in, and for up to 72 hours, they have pain control. So what we do is we numb up around the sites with the Expril, and we do intercostal blocks with the Marcaine. And most people are totally fine, except for two days later, then all of a sudden they start having pain as it starts to wear off. Um, but they, they're able to go home without any problems. <clears throat> uh, they rarely need narcotics longer than two to three days. I mean, most patients that have wedge resections are, are done with their narcotics after a two to three day period for wedges. Lobes and segments, greater than 90% of these are done, minimally invasive. They all have PCEAs. They're usually discharged on post-up day, uh, day two or post-up day one. They're kept in house for the same reasons, pain control or a, uh, an air leak. Uh, this is what we expect of them. And I tell them this before surgery. One mile, day after surgery. Right? Get up, get going. They should do a monoile per day minimum. They were told this before surgery, exercising at home, and all should be uh, in chairs for meals. There's this idea that, like, you know, patient's sick, so I walk into a room and they literally have like six pillows around them and they're like laying like this. And I was like, what's wrong? And they're like, nothing. The nurse just put this around me. Right? And so, Get them up, we get them into chairs. The chairs are reclining chairs, and unfortunately a lot of patients were being reclined in the chairs. It's the same thing as being in bed, so all chairs have to be upright. And, uh, and I always tell patients, I, I'm not a nice guy. I've never claimed to be a nice guy. I don't, I don't want to be your friend. It's not my job. My job is to get you out of the hospital safely with the fewest number of complications. And so I'll come in and I'll yell at them. I'll tell them that they're not getting up, they're not moving. 
Um, we also have created a prehab program. Uh, so in patients who are undergoing surgery, all of them are expected to do 30 minutes of aerobic activity every day. If they have to split it up into 10 or 15 minute segments, that's okay. <clears throat> um, I've had some very, very unhappy patients about this that were yelling at me. I had an older woman who told me that it wasn't, <laughs> that, that I didn't know anything about her and who was I to tell her what she was supposed to be doing. Oh, I mean, she just laid into me like nobody's problem. Nobody's it was pretty funny. Um, and, and so I said to her, I said, ma'am, I totally, I appreciate that. I said, but my job isn't to make you happy. My job is to get you through the surgery. Um, and I said, and you know, she was a person that had um, really bad spinal stenosis and she actually had um, braces that she had to walk with. Uh, and uh, I told her that if she couldn't, couldn't actually do what I asked her to do, then we would proceed on to radiation therapy and not do surgery. And so she came back three weeks later in the clinic and, um, and she was shaking her head when I walked in and I thought that she was gonna give me another earful and she said, I, I hate to admit it, but you're right. She said, I feel better than I've ever felt in my life and I've been exercising every day. And she said, now I'm haranguing the women that sit and don't get up and walk. And I just say, it's just a half an hour. <laughs> so, so we're getting it going. We're actually gonna start a research uh, protocol on this uh, to look specifically at patients. Um, and then we do what's called the POP program, or the post-op pulmonary program. So RTPT and nursing, early ambulation, incentive cough and deep breathing, appropriate NEBS. And this is pretty much, this data comes from Sloan Kettering, my last uh, job. So ICU admissions were down by 50%, mortality was down by 40%, just by making patients get up and walk. And it's concerted effort and everyone does it, and the patients know beforehand so that they're not surprised when everyone comes in. And the nursing staff, I tell them, just tell them that I'm gonna be angry so that you have to go in there. So the nurses say, listen, you don't want Dr. Finley to be angry. Get up, you gotta walk, and so it helps. <clears throat> so post-up day zero, they're out of bed. They should be ambulating that afternoon. Chest tubes are water sealed, we advance their diet. We some, sometimes remove the chest tubes. Post-up day one, some of them will go home. They'll be weaned off oxygen. Post-up day two, almost everyone is DC'd home and they continue their ambulation at home. So this is kind of the protocol. And <clears throat> we look at the most patients, I'd say probably about 80% of patients will, will follow this protocol. Uh, there's 20% of patients that fall off of it, usually due to air leaks. <clears throat> so esophagectomies, we do all of our esophagectomies now minimally invasive. Uh, they take us about seven to eight hours to do in the operating room, which is about the same as for an open procedure. Uh, but um, they have a lot less pain, so we're sending them home usually on post-up day seven or eight. Um, some are going home on day five and day six. <clears throat> they ambulate as well, and they do a mile, and they're told this before surgery, same thing, no difference. We get them up pretty quickly. Um, they are not going to the ICU. Actually, all of our patients are recovered and go straight to the floor. Unless there's something specific, they're extubated in the, in the uh, operating room, they go to the recovery room for four hours and they go to the floor. That's how well these patients are doing. And they, you know, they have a seven or eight hour case and they're going right to the floor without any major issues. <clears throat> they're ambulating, Renji tube is working, we wean them off their oxygen, we ambulate them, we start their tube feeds, we advance the tube feeds, we ambulate them, their NG tube goes to gravity, so we go from having them on suction to gravity, and then hopefully on post-up day five, we get the NG tube out, they get a bearing swallow, they go to clear liquids, remove their chest tubes, epidural, their JP train goes home with them, and they have a J tube that we place, and they go home on J tube feeds overnight, so they do not need to get their nutrition by mouth. There's a very good study that looked at patients that started eating post-up day two versus post-up three weeks afterwards, and it found that the leak rate went from 15% to 5%. So we've instituted where they, they basically get clears and they, they advance to like usually a, a, a full liquid diet. And then they come in usually on a full liquid diet or purees depending on how they're doing. But they are not asked to take in enough food to maintain their caloric intake. 
uh, and that's specifically so that they don't stress the anastomosis. <clears throat> um, and they, uh, and basically they, they get out of the hospital really well. We've had a couple of leaks. I'm not gonna, you know, it happens. It's about a five to ten percent leak rate. Uh, it's a common. It's across the board. Um, there's almost no one that has a leak rate lower than that. Um, the uh, most of the leak rate, most of the leaks are leaks that are. Um, ones that you don't have to do anything about. You see a leak on it, you just keep med PO and it'll heal up on its own. Uh, there's some patients that have to get stented and some patients that you have to reoperate on. Uh, but that's the nature of an esophagectomy. It's a high complication, it's a very difficult uh, surgery for people to tolerate and for them to recover from. <clears throat> so, and then just on other floors, if you ever have a question, so if pain is not, uh, if the patient's pain is not controlled, Despite initial changes, has fever, increasing O2 requirements, or other significant changes, the resident has to go to the bedside. We are having a bunch of our, in the beginning, residents were just giving orders over the phone to nurses. Nurses call, Mr. So-and-so has a fever. Draw blood cultures and start them on Zosin. What the hell are you doing? It's not, it's not, you go by and you see the patient. Um, and basically, my, our theory, so Tim and I, um, if you're not satisfactory response from the residents, you call us. We, one of us is on all the time, and we're always available. And if Tim's not available, I'm almost always available. It's pretty uncommon that I'm not. And I, I think that this is probably the most important thing is that I have no interest in finding out. I don't like what I call discovery rounds. I don't like coming in at 7 o'clock in the morning or 6 o'clock in the morning and finding out stuff that happened overnight that no one was called about or no one wanted to bother me. I didn't want to bother you overnight. It doesn't work. <clears throat> and I have some pretty significant expectations of the nursing staff. So they're fully examined. All IV seats, all, tu all tube sites, all wounds, right? A person has a fever, and I go in and I find that they have a thrombophobitis, and no one examined the patient. I can't tell you how upset that makes me. <laughs> I'm not a nice person when I'm upset. So just like I expect certain things of the residents and I expect certain things of myself, as long as we do the job together, these patients do really well. There's a, <clears throat> we have about three minutes left, there's a thing that's called failure to rescue. I don't know if anyone's ever heard this term before. <clears throat> um, Um, if you look at small hospitals that have low uh, surgeon volumes and you look at larger hospitals that have large surgeon volumes or large, large case volumes at the hospital, there is no difference in the percent complication between those hospitals. So you go to you know, Joe's Auto Mechanics and Thoracic Surgery Program down the road and, uh, and they have a 25 to 35% complication rate. Um, and you come here and we have a 25% complication rate. So there's no difference in the percent complication. The difference is my mortality rate is 0.3%. And his mortality rate is 10%. Well, how can you say that? Well, your complication rates are the same. It's because the grade of the complication is different. And this is the, the term failure to rescue. So at an institution that has seen the same procedure over and over and over again and understands what happens and understands the subtle changes that occur to a patient when something's going wrong, they catch it sooner, they diagnose it correctly, and then they treat it appropriately before it gets bad. So the grades are one through five, one being the bedside treatment, a pill or something like that, five being death. Four is complications that lead to long-term sequelae. Three is an intervention like an operative intervention or an IR intervention. So what you do is you change the grade of the complication. The complication rate stays the same. So by doing this, by making sure that we are looking at all of these things and following these patients and making sure that if something twitches the wrong way, we're all on top of it, we reduce the grades of complications from a grade four or grade three to a grade one or a grade two. That means that they're less likely to stay in the hospital longer and they're less likely to have a complication because of it, a major complication because of it. And that's really what you need to do. <clears throat> so eyes and ears, 
bedside all the time. I can't be there. My residents can't be there. That's what we use the nursing staff for, and the nursing staff is phenomenal. And I, I have to say that I am completely and utterly impressed with what 4West has done with the amount of volume that we've thrown at them in such a short period of time. We are currently doing about almost 20% over what was done at the highest volume this institution ever did for thoracic surgery. And that was in 2011. And then last year, we are literally 300% over what was done last year. So done a great job. We just kind of, kind of keep on top of things. So that was a picture that I took one morning as I was coming to work. This is the, this is the house that we're renting. We still haven't moved into a, the house that is taking that. You know, it's like the money pit. <laughs> so, anyway, any questions? Oh, we got a minute or two left. <clears throat> Sorry, I talk quickly. And it's a lot of information all at once. All right, excellent. Thank you very much. I appreciate you coming.